Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 113th show, and I also want to thank everybody in the audience uh, who's been supporting the show because we just won the prestigious Communicator Award for the Best Business Minds, so I thank all of you for that. Today's guest is Mark Harris, author of Magic Dust. Mark, welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and I really enjoyed your book. And I think uh, anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur needs to read your book. It's very insightful. Um, so let's start off with, uh, please tell us about your professional background. And after you sold your latest healthcare facility, what are you doing now? Wow. Okay. So from a background perspective, I uh, was raised in the Midwest. Uh, and uh, when I finished my undergrad in business administration, decided to move to Dallas. Texas. And um, I guess uh, as things worked out, my first uh, opportunity in the business world was working with a guy named Mark Cuban. And uh, Microsolutions was his first company at age 27. And I was 22 with the business background. And um, I started knocking on doors in a sales role. And that just developed into um, six years in computer electronics, and then uh, finished a master's degree in health administration and then spent the next uh, 25 plus years in uh, healthcare. So there's the background, more details to, to come. Yeah. So wh- why did you write this book? And I did like the title, Magic Dust. So wh- why that title and why the book? Great question. So Magic Dust is uh, somewhat of a cliche to a lot of people. We say that... Uh, they had the magic, you know, the magic going that day. They had the magic sprinkle dust. Um, the people always refer as magic dust as something that is almost mythical, but it's really not. Uh, when you look back at people that have been successful or the people that perceive uh, magic and dust as something that's elusive, if you think about it, it takes a lot of people to make things uh, work. And in the book, Magic Dust, I wanted people to read the book and see and resonate with the book as them finding their own magic dust. So the stories, as you read, um, reflect on not just Mark Cuban of the world, but Paul Hirschman, and then on down the line to motivators, innovators, warriors, different types of people, all serving specific roles uh, in the world and in the business world so that we make our own magic dust. And if you look at your, your own role you are part of the magic dust Uh, and i liked it i like that name a lot and i was wondering what's the process you went through to find your own magic dust well uh as a kid and as as i reflected in the book as a 10 year old with a a paper out my first uh, delve into being a, a business person in the first place to deliver newspapers and get paid to do something um 
and I, did, I didn't realize that those are life lessons and from computer, from paperboy to computer electronics to healthcare, you know, I didn't really reflect until retiring almost where I sat back and I, I listened to the comment to people who say, oh, Mark Harris, you always have the magic dress. Everything you do, you're, you're successful at. Or how do you know all these people like Mike, Mark Cuban, Bartman, Doug Dawson on down the line? Lots of good people. I mean, athletes over the years, too, that were special and they had the magic dust. Um, that's kind of where that started and that's where it came from. So reflecting back, I use the magic dust as something that uh, a lot of people, I think, have. So I, I want to um, go down uh, and talk about Mark Cuban a little bit because we're, he's a household name on a global basis and your first chapter is on him. What was Mark Cuban like to work with and what did you learn from him and what makes him a great entrepreneur? Uh, well, when I was with Mark, I was 22, 23, and Mark was 27. So Mark's about five, six years older than me. And when, when you go to work with someone like Mark at, at my own young age, at Mark's young age, he's, he was hustling. He was working. He was coming to work motivated, excited. But, you know, looking back now, uh, I, I can see how his mind was very similar to, to most entrepreneurs people. We were excited, we're motivated. Um, Mark was a, I wouldn't say a total hands-off guy, but Mark was a, uh, a leader by example. I mean, he wanted to, he'd go on calls with you. He wanted to see what was going on. He wanted to hear what the customers were saying. Um, he was involved in the sales meetings. He was, um, uh, how do you say, he was a step, step out of the box guy. You know, uh -huh. he was, he was already looking for niches or niches. And, and what, I, what I say to people is local area networks, lands. okay? Back in 1985, local area networks were tying computers together and sharing files. That was a big deal because in our previous you know, 10 years, we were in the big box world, the IBM world, where we had a big box and you had a, a, a dumb terminal. You, know, what, you could do nothing but load onto your company software and you know, do whatever they wanted you to do. And so you weren't creative where you have a personal computer. And so when we got into the personal computer where people were, I'm told I'm not talking too fast, people could share a Lotus uh, spreadsheet or go into a database and share the same information with the five people in your department. Now, remember in 1985, you had to be within a 250 feet area to be able to share the, share the ethernet. Uh, so it's not quite like it is today. It's obviously come a long way technology-wise, but sitting down with people like Mark who saw opportunities like local area networks and making ourselves the number one local area network uh, company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area was a big deal. And going to meetings with Mark, you could see his mind always thinking. So, and he had a partner, uh, Martin Woodall. Martin and Mark had... Uh, I think about eight people that stayed with them for the whole duration of their company. Mike Frank was switching to around eight years. And I was only there for the first two when we went from the second year. I wrote, I, I guess I wrote in on the second year. They had done like 3 million the previous year. I was there for the explosion when we went from three to 10 million. And, and I remember it because I was fortunate to have the opportunity to work with some big, big name companies like Trammell Crow and Lincoln property and Dave and Buster um, MARC. They all became million dollar accounts in, in 1985. So I was really excited to be uh, a big contributor with Mark's company. You know, I was surprised you wrote, and I had no idea that 
um, before his big hit where he became a billionaire, I think you wrote he was already worth like $350 million. Yeah. So in doing the book, uh, I, you know, I worked with a, a ghostwriter and uh, she did a lot of research. And Mark went from the uh, micro solutions world where a lot of people don't know that that company sold for like 20 million to a competitor, uh, Compu, CompuServe, which is, you know, same space competitor. But um, I think Mark and Martin, after eight years, saw the opportunity of time to, you know, go on to bigger and better things. And when they sold for 20 million, I think Mark only netted, I'd say only, Mark netted like five and a half million. And that's when he's got his five and a half million, sat at home and bought his uh, American Airlines ticket, as they say. He spent his whatever, $150,000, $200,000 to buy his, you know, fly for life ticket for American and then sat at home. And then that gave him the opportunity to see things again, like the domains. Um, Mark was into the domain world where he was, um, you know, purchasing what he saw was like AT&T.com. He was buying that AT&T.com domain and then selling them back to those companies, right? And that was where he was amassing a lot of money. Again, being a visionary, seeing what people were going to want in the future and being a step ahead. Uh, had, had, had created a nice chunk of change into the hundreds of millions when uh, his friend, um, uh, Todd had approached him, his partner at broadcast.com. And it was actually AudioNet before it was broadcast.com. So AudioNet was the name of the company. If you don't mind, I'll continue on that. Uh, I yeah, was, I do, because I think that interests people. So I was at an airport and I picked up a USA Today um, paper. And on the paper, it was Mark Cuban holding the laptop with his hand on the laptop and his big smile going, that, you know, typical Mark Cuban with this big smile. Uh, he was pointing at the laptop and and it said um, broadcast.com and it's had the Victoria's Secret runway models. Uh-huh. Okay. So when they did AudioNet slash broadcast.com, the idea was to stream Indiana basketball games onto the you know laptop so that the, the, the Indiana crew that Mark, Mark ran around with could watch the Indiana basketball games on their computer well mark you know again being a good marketer and smart guy he says hey we got to do something that everybody or more people can get excited about than just indiana alum and so he put the victoria secret runway model show on the laptop boom instant success and then i said i hurried up and called my uh my financial people and i said by broadcast.com and sure enough you know within months broadcast was sold to yahoo for 5.7 billion and cuban and, and uh todd each got whatever two plus billion so congrats to them that was a great story um I, I have another question about mark before we do that though there's a question from the audience and not strictly a business question as the person writes is it true that he invented streaming and that the first streamed event ever was his brother's wedding Oh, you'd have to check the facts on that. I'm not sure. I didn't follow him that closely when they started it. What what kind of culture was Mark Cuban developing uh, when he worked with you? And and what was his personality uh, like? Because he seems to be pretty unaffected by his success. Seems like a pretty normal guy. Yeah, that's a... That's a good observation. You know, Mark, and, and I've watched him now for, you know, since we're in our 20s. So he's 60, what, four, 65 now? Let's see, I'm 59. He's probably 64. So Mark, 
uh, and my kids and I, you know, I've got five kids and we still watch Shark Tank and we love watching Cuba. They always go, dad, I can't believe you work at it. I can't believe you know him. Um, and I'll tell you a story the last four years when I got together with Mark and one of my kids. Um, but uh, Mark created, uh, you know, he, he's always a, a high energy, positive guy. So, you know, you always feel that charisma towards him and you like to hear what he has to say and he's, and he's, and he's good, but you know, he didn't tell stories. He was very to the point. We came in there. We knew we were having focused meetings. Uh, you talk directly about what you're doing. You don't talk about your, your, whatever your friends and what you're doing last night and all that kind of stuff. It was wait, get to business. Okay. So I like that. And I continue my life like that too, where, um, you know, Mark's culture was, I wouldn't, he wasn't a, um, a hands-on guy. He really wanted people to go out and do what they were going to do. I mean, if you were a programmer and you're going to be the guy putting on the, the, uh, uh, so for example, we sold our computers to people back in 1985, 86, when you opened up your laptop or your, well, not your laptop, your well, laptop or, or the desk, but you're oh, turned on your computer. We had a menu and it said database, spreadsheet, or word processor, right? That's all you had as a word processor, database, spreadsheet. And that was really important to a lot of people. They pull, when they turned their computer on, they didn't have to go into DOS, remember, their disk operating system, and have to put in you know, what you're going to do or type in the program. You could just choose one, two, or three. And a lot of people thought that was really cool. And that was something that Mark and Martin came up with, and they did it on all of our computers. Um, so Mark was a hands-off guy. When Mark said, I was one of the three people, Sally and Tony and myself, we were out in the field knocking on doors. And then Mark and Martin had their own their own clients. So when we got together, uh, Mark would basically just say, I'd say, hey, a couple of my customers want to talk to you, like Lincoln Property and David, uh, like Lincoln Property, David Buster and Trammell Crow were big companies. They were nation, na national. They had offices, you know, outside of Dallas. I'd say, hey, Mark, these guys are interested in putting these local area networks in Los Angeles, Minnesota, Chicago. And uh, I said, I told them we could do it. I, I, we can, right? <laughs> and Mark would come to the meeting, his eyes are all big, and they would say, yeah, we'd like to know if we can do the same thing that we're doing here, tying the computer sharing files in these other cities. And Mark said, yeah, well, you bet. And so we'd come back to the office and figure out we did, we uh, made Scott Susan's our on the road guy and he'd go out on the road and he was putting it in, in around the nation. And here we were just a little Dallas company going from 3 million to 10 million to 20 million when they sold it finally at 20 million. How did Mark uh, Cuban pick and develop and maintain teams? Like, what was his, what were, what was your observations about his methodology for people picking people like you, and developing them, and then hopefully keeping them on board? Well, I mean, I'm not one of the people who stayed eight years with them. Obviously, I left after a couple of years, but um, and I, I want to tell you about what what nice words Mark said to me 30 years later. Um, but, uh, when, when I was there, I guess the people that were there, uh, Mike and, and Tony and Sally and, and Rex, and, um, I, I even remember them and, uh, and I've talked to a couple of them since then. And, you know, they, what they said was they just, they really just felt like they were, um, part of the team. They were part of the company. They were there from the beginning and they, everybody took pride in being part of that. You know, I was in a, a sales role and was recruited um, away from micro solutions, really by opportunity to be like a regional manager for a big company. And so when I left, uh, Cuban's like, Mark, we have an ESOP. You know, what are you doing, man? You're part of it. And I go, what's an ESOP? <laughs> That's the employee stock option program. Yeah. 
at 23, 24, man, I was like, what's that? You know, I, I really yeah. wasn't, you know, it, I didn't see that as a, as a reason to keep me. Cause I was, I was just more motivated about the, you know, the process of how things worked. And, and anyway, so when I've talked to Mike uh, specifically, Mike Weiniger, Mike was there for the eight years and Mike just said, you know, Mark, it was, we just, everybody's got along, you know, that we didn't have a lot. There was, I don't remember any, uh, well, the only, only, what do you call it? Uh, discussions that Mark and Martin would have, they would go into one of their offices to close the door and it got loud. But then when they come out, Mark would have a smile on his face, he goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. It was never uh, just, they didn't draw lines and pick battles. We weren't doing that. It wasn't a lot of backstabbing. It was a, it was a positive competitive environment. And what did you say Mark said to you after 30 years? So um, uh, when, well, so my daughter, who's uh, 25, we went to, a, we're seeing ticket holders to the Mavericks. And when I, when I moved back to Dallas in 2007, we called to get seen tickets to the Mavs. And the lady uh, said, hey, I'm sorry, we have a waiting list. There's no tickets available. And I just said, hey, I would just like to know if I could get on the, um, the rotation list. They had a rotation list where you don't have the same seat, you just move around. And I said, well, if I can get on that, that'd be fine. I'll start there for a year or two and then work my way down to, the, to get on the scene tickets. Well, I said, but hey, you know, I hate to drop names, but would you tell Mark Cuban, Mark Harris is back in town and see if I can, you know, get on that rotation list. And uh, the girl called back about an hour and a half later and she said, Mr. Harris, yes. Uh, so Mark said he'd uh, like to treat you to four on the floor to a game, and uh, you can welcome to come say hi to him in the suite anytime. And uh, you're on the rotation list. And I go, okay. Well, tell him I don't need four on the floor, but I appreciate it, and I'll come see him in the suite sometime. And and thanks. Bye. Click. I go, and then a couple of years later, I figured out how it worked, and I ended up becoming a foundation member where you make a donation for your seats, and then now I've been permanently on the ninth row and on midcourt. Mark sits in the corner, so I, I get to watch him, but I don't run over and say hi to Mark, and 10 years later goes by, and my my daughter Zoe invited me and said, Dad, we need to go to a Mavericks Gala Foundation. Uh, I said, okay. So we go to the foundation, and she says, Dad, there's Mr. Cuban. I'm going to go say hi, and I saw him, I saw him, you know, about 10 feet away, and I grabbed a big friend of mine, a six-foot-nine friend of mine, when I say big, six-foot-nine, um, big. I, said, I said, you want to meet uh, Cuban? He said, heck yeah. I said, well, come on, let's go say hi. So we go over there and my daughter's kind of in line behind two or three people and we wait for her and I've got, his name's Colin. Colin's behind in front of me, but his back is towards Cuban and we're standing and stacked in a row. And Zoe walks up, reaches out, says, hi, Mr. Cuban, nice to meet you. And he said, hi. She goes, Zoe Harris. And he goes, I, she goes, I believe you used to work with my dad 30 years ago at Micro Solutions. And Mark goes, okay, I'll bite. Who's your dad? And she said, Mark Harris. And he said, it's a big smile. He says, absolutely, I know your dad. Your dad was a significant part of our success. How's he been doing? And I stepped out and I go, hey, Cuban, I'm right here. He had a big smile and we, we embraced. And he said, Mark, he said, what the heck have you been up to? And I said, uh, life's been good. And uh, he grabbed my daughter and he said, let me tell you about your dad. He said, your dad was a, uh, he killed it when he was with us. And I know whatever he decided to do in life, he would kill it. He said, Mark, what'd you end up doing? I said, I ended up going into healthcare. I go, I didn't do $4 billion, but I did okay. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he said, yeah, I'm sure you did. And, and we started talking about a couple of other people. And, and later in the night, my daughter um, had uh, 
participated in the auction. And she bought a, the a picture with the Mavs uh, to take your picture with the Mavericks. And they would autograph it later and send you a framed picture. So my daughter was bidding on the auction and uh, she won. And I happened to be about 10 feet away having another conversation with uh, one of the players, Harrison Barnes, who's from Iowa also. And I'll just continue there. Harrison Barnes was from Iowa also, the state of Iowa. And I'm from Cedar Rapids, Harrison from Ames, Iowa. And he was talking to another gentleman, Colin, who played basketball at TCU. And he said, Mark, you got to hear the story. So I go over and talking to Harrison and he said, hey, I saw you talking to Cuban earlier. That's pretty cool. And this is a you know, professional basketball player. And I go, I go, yeah, he's just he's the same guy I knew 30 years ago. And um, he said, yeah, Colin wanted me to tell you the story about when I he won a state championship two years in a row. They're like 87 and no. When he got, uh, they won the championship, he came outside and there was a limo waiting for him. And inside the limo, the door opens up, it's MJ. Wow. Michael Jordan recruited Harrison Barnes out of high school to go to North Carolina. And uh, I said, that's pretty cool. I goes, does he still take your call? He goes, he'll return my call. He may not pick it up, but he returns my call. I was like, yeah, it's a great story, right? Well, then my daughter's over there waving at me 10 feet away. And I run over there and I say, Zoe, what's going on? She goes, dad, we won, we won. I said, well, what did we win? She goes, we're going to get our picture with the Mavs. I go, well, how much did we win by? She goes, it's just a little over your five to 10 budget, dad, you gave me. I said, what did we pay? She goes, 11500 I go, oh, for our picture at the Mavs. Okay, well, when are we going to do that? She goes, right now. So we go upstairs, and they got the photographers, everybody up in a big big line, and they put us in the middle. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm six foot. My daughter's 5'3", so they move me out of the way, and they put J.J. Barrera in, and they're standing next to each other. And I, they stick me on the couch with six foot five Wesley Matthews, who you know now plays for the Bucks. Um, and I'm sitting there, and after we take the picture, I stand up, and Cuban puts his hands on my shoulder, and he says, "Hey, y'all, gather around. Thirty years reunion here with this guy, and here he is donating thirty, you know, eleven thousand five hundred to our uh, fund." And uh, I look back and I said, "Well, I wish it. I wish it was me, Cuban." And my daughter goes, "It was me." <laughs> And uh, she just—it's like she says, best night of her life. Great memories, and it was because of Cuban. Cuban was just a, like you said, just a down-to-earth guy, making good conversation, making it special. So I enjoy talking about him, and everybody likes to get insights into the people they see to see if they're really as real as they appear on TV. So let's go back to your book. You broke your heroes down into four categories. Can you tell us what those categories are and why you chose them? Uh, when I first wrote the, the, came up with the Magic Dust idea and what I wanted to um, resonate, you know, with people that everybody has their own Magic Dust, uh, we went through about 20, 20, actually more than 25 different stories of different people, narrowed it down to the 19. And then we made a list of the characteristics and the things that I thought were important uh, about the different leaders and different character charisma and uh, the qualities of these different types of people. And I said, you know what, if we broke it down into groups where people could identify better with, and that's how we came up with visionaries like Cuban, Paul Hirschman, like myself, where we're, we're looking to the next thing. How, how can we grow our company? What's the next thing we can do? Uh, what, what else can we do? 
Um, then there's implementers, which we all call those like COOs. You know, the these are your task managers. These people are the ones that want the list. These are your CPAs, your uh, your divisional managers, regional managers. These are the people who are task oriented. They you give them the task and they make it happen. They get it done. And then you have motivators, which is the third group. Motivators, you know, we have a lot of people that are motivating in a organization that are important because they they're the people we come to work for, the people we, we like being at work with. They they make it interesting or fun because they just motivate you. A lot of those are marketing salespeople to a lot of people, but I think a lot of people that are around the around the cooler, as they say, that are just people you like being around. Okay. Implementers are a lot of people that go into their office and they'll just crank away doing spreadsheets and getting things done. Um, motivators are, are people who motivate people. And then the fourth group, um, and as you read the book, you know the story about my other daughter, um, yeah. Abby, um, was, who was born in the third day. We, we, were, we found out she had meningitis. And she came to mind because you know, I watched people like her, and I, we hired a lot of them in the hospital world that were um, a lot of techs and uh, even our housekeeping, maintenance, dietary people were, um, you know, challenged. And uh, they, were the, they were some of the happiest people that our, our patients, when they got discharged, would comment about on their, you know, on their, on their, uh, on their little uh, customer, customer satisfaction deals. They'd say, I really enjoyed the little girl and your dietary. I really enjoyed the, you know, the tech that was in the therapy room. And Abby, to me, was one of those special people because she's overcome so much from, from her, her own. And then, as you read uh, in the book, there's Tom, who lost his dad at age six. Um, and then uh, Brian, who is a native Indian, who has kids that were college educated, and he was listening to him talk. And I was like, this guy was living on a reservation and taking us to the reservation while we're up there fishing. And then he's talking about kids that are college grads. I'm like, man, that's awesome. Um, so I, I just wanted the, to be more inclusive in the book with the, the multiple different um, types of people so people could resonate and see maybe that were they themselves qualified in any of those categories along the way. We're not all visionaries from day one. You know, we've all changed or we've all grown. A lot of um, successful entrepreneurs come from rough circumstances. H how do you dream uh, an attainable positive reality i mean you talk about that in the book how do you what's what's the mindset and everything that you need for that wow uh i, I you know I, I was fortunate because my parents may not have been um you know they were high school dropouts uh, married at 16 18 uh, but you know uh, so much of, of life is not really um about where you start you know it's like as they say it's where you finish uh, but I think along the way, your your life is is what you make it. You make the decisions every day what you want to do and where you you know how you want to enjoy your life or you want to complain about it. You know, do you want to go out and make things happen or you want to tell everybody how bad it is all the time? And when you're when you're poor um, or you're like you say your um, rough background or a rough start, uh, it, it doesn't define where you're going to be. It just says, hey, you know, we don't always all start off with the, what they say was a silver spoon. Um, I think my mom and dad did a really good job of giving me um, an open mind to go out and think that I could do anything I wanted to. Um, they, they didn't, they weren't dream killers. How's that? That's the word. You know, I think that as a parent, and, and I knew we were talking earlier, um, 
you know, one of the, one of the hardest things to do is, is balance, you know, between being a business success and still being a good family guy. And, and I think that one of the things that I purposely have done over the years is to watch my kids to let them all be who they want to be in the future. Um, not, not tell them what I think they should do or go into areas that I think are cool, but let them find what they want to do. You know, I think you, you were talking about, um, you see Cuban on everyday life. One of my, my youngest daughter, uh, Sophie is, uh, going on 16 and she always talks about dad, Mark Cuban is on TikToks with his daughter. You got to do TikToks with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I go, I go, Sophie, man, and she's so creative. Uh, and I watch her as she, you know, thinks about things on like TikTok. And I realized that she is not, she's uninhibited um, to, to, to think like that. And I would not have said, let's go do TikToks, you know, because I want you to, you know, do this for yourself. But the fact that she's doing it and she's not inhibited, um, and I and she talks about it, like I say, Cuban, Cuban's 65 years old, he's doing TikTok. I love it. You know, it still makes you more normal. Yeah, I think so too. Um, with t- with today's insur- uh, insurgence of Richmond, get rich mentality quick, especially digital currency, metaverse. What's your take on t- on traditional businesses? Wow. Uh, to- Good, good, uh, good, good uh, um, current event that, with the digital currency. The um, and uh, when I watch digital currency or cryptocurrency, and I I'm trying to you know get involved, and I'm I'm, I'm still an, I'm actually an early investor in a few things. But um, compared to how we grew up and and how traditional business is still done, there's still many relationships in traditional business. You know they have they talk about supply chain. Um, you talk about long term relationships with clients and the things that we had to do to to keep those relationships versus the get rich get on crypto buy something it goes you know 100x or a thousand x and we're instant millionaires um that's that's the that's the problem today that so many people don't realize that traditional business isn't going anywhere you know we're still going to have to go to the grocery store we still go out to eat we still drive cars we still you know we still like toys we like boats and jet skis and we still buy things we still have to interact with each other you know we're not just all going to do it on amazon uh, amazon's nice for a lot of people um, but there's still things we still like to go out and do in person there's still things we we still like to have that uh, relationship you know one of the things that i thought was interesting in your book is that you profile a lot of people that are definitely not household names besides Mark Cuban. And when people were asked these, this question, I'm going to ask you, you know, it's easy to talk about Elon Musk or other high profile entrepreneurs. But I, I was wondering from you studying entrepreneurs and, and featuring so many of them in the book, what's the common thread that makes any of them successful from your research? Was there a common denominator? Yeah, the the, you know, even though Elon is now diversifying, right? He's gone from the spaceship to the, you know, from Tesla. Now he's going into Twitter. And Cuban now looks like he does all kinds of things too. And, and me personally, you know, I, I branched out and invested in other things too. But that's not how we got successful. We stuck with one thing long enough to be good at one thing and make yourself, I mean, Jeff Bezos, come on. He, Amazon is his baby. The fact that he gets to do other things now is not how he became the billionaire. He stayed focused. I think that's probably the 
number one word is to be focused. And I mean, zero focus. Like I, I did not waver in, you know, my first 10 years and look at other things. People always approach you with other ideas. And well, you're a serial entrepreneur yourself, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be good at one thing long enough, but if you stay with it long enough and, and make yourself successful, other things come to you a lot easier. Yes. But you have to be focused. You can't go out and, and, and what do they say, be the, um, you know, the master of, of 10 things. You can be master one um, before you try to be anything else. Yeah, and it's easy to get distracted, especially today with so much flying at you, for sure. Yes. In the beginning of the book, you asked the question if people can be taught to be visionaries, and you wrote no. And I was just wondering why not, because most everybody will tell you anybody can be anything but you have a lot of experience in this area. So why did you write now? Um, you know, anytime you're, you're definitive, when <laughs> you say never or always or yes or no sometimes, uh, you, to answer no is the fact that there's so many schools and colleges now um, that teach entrepreneurship, okay? And I guess visionary should be thrown in there as well, I think. You should, you should be saying stuff like, not just is he an entrepreneur, but is he a visionary, okay? Because um, an entrepreneur could, so many people think they're an entrepreneur and it's really, as Shark Tank, you know, elicits, it's it's a really a hobby, it's not a business yet. It's just an idea, it, it's not a proven concept, right? Um, and in the, in the world of visionary, I think there's a lot of people who have really cool ideas, but they don't have a, a purposeful vision of how to get there, how it's going to get there. You know, how am I going to get from A to Z? Not just A to B, right? But A to Z. How are we going to start it? How are things going to come together? How are we going to get the end result? How are we going to get a product? How are we going to get a service delivered? You know, where's our market? Where's, you know, and we have to know all these things where a lot of people just have great ideas um, and they call themselves a visionary. I think a visionary sees when that comes out, what are we going to do next? It's like Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs was one of the best visionaries he saw something that people were going to want in the future that didn't even have today and then he knew what was going to happen after they did he did the first prototype he knew what's going to happen next and the next right that's a true visionary and i don't think that that's something that he and he, he was a dropout right it, you know bill gates was a dropout um michael dell i think was a dropout i mean these people were way ahead and visionary and i don't think that in school you, you go to school and say yeah i think i'm a visionary I think it's something that is innate. So you're born with that. I, I, I believe that too. Um, what does it take to be a visionary? Well, uh, yeah, I, I wish it was something you could take and, and, uh, and study and read a book and, and make you a visionary. I think it's, a, again, something that's natural. I think you have to, um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to say I did this at, at 10 years old, but when I got my first paper out, I think I had 25 or 50 people. And as I'm driving around on my bike, you know, delivering the paper, I remember going, I don't know, why am I not delivering the paper there too? Man, why can't I deliver paper there too? That'd be really close to me. Next, you know, within a year, I had 125. <laughs> you know, I had my, so the things that you see, you have to, you, you can go make happen. And I think a lot of people, number one, we all know 95% of the world doesn't see themselves owning a company or, or starting something, they're happy and they're content. And we want them to be great implementers, great motivators, 
and a lot of them are warriors. There's, you know, overcoming a lot of obstacles. And we have to be aware that everybody has a purpose. Everybody has a role and we need everybody. It's not, we can't have all be mission, visionaries running around thinking we're all going to conquer the world, right? So I, I think that if we keep it where there's 5% that are visionaries and 1% actually finish the product or finish their vision, that, that's pretty much the odds. I was surprised to see that Tim Cook is in the list of top 10 innovators by Forbes because I don't think Apple has really done anything new since Steve Jobs passed. What's your take on this? You know, because I think of him more as like a, a guy who runs the day-to-day -day of the business, but not somebody who comes up and is visionary and, and develops new ideas. Um. Uh, you know, I can't, uh, I, I don't know Mr. Cook, you know, personally, so I don't know how his mind thinks, but from a, from an outside looking in to a company like Apple, um, I mean, they, they continue to do the, you know, I think, then they do the Fitbit, then they do the watch, the computer on the watch. I mean, they've, they've continued to do things. Uh, but man, a guy like Cook, who has a, a, just a huge monster to control like Apple, and to keep it to keep in the position that he's in and have this company still with high regard, incredible reputation. They still get the best of the best engineers. Uh, they're very, they're relative. They're somewhat, they didn't go anywhere after Steve. It's been a while. So I think maybe Mr. Cook's, you know, vision at might be his vision of, of keeping the company relevant. You know, his vision might be just the things that he does as a manager. Um, like he might be an implementer, but he also sees the company and where it's going. He may not be the entrepreneur innovator like we talked about, like Steve Jobs is and was, but he still he still has some of the brightest minds bringing them ideas in his own company. You, you and you talked about this before you and wrote about it. You had a paper route, which is many people's first jobs. What what was the life lessons you took from that job that's helped you build the career that you have? You know, when uh, when I started writing the book, the uh, the the self uh, introspection that you have to do to uh, kind of get deeper, and when I when I was fortunate to have a, a ghostwriter ask me a lot of questions, made me really think about things. And so simple things like the paper route. I remember her question was, "Well, was there any customers you really liked or people you really didn't like?" And I was like, "What a good question!" But I was ten years old at the time, right? And I started thinking that was a that was a big question for a 10 or 11 year old. But then I thought about the one person who I didn't like was Mr. Thurston. And Mr. Thurston was the guy who stood out in his front yard with his bibs on and his white tank top. And he was, you know, uh, bald head. He had his military tattoos on both arms and he would sit out there with his bibs in the front yard and he would be beckoning people, get off my yard, get out of the street and tell everybody what to do. And he was also the guy who always said, I want my paper on my doorstep. If, it's, if I can't see it when I look out my window, then you need to bring it to me. He would call and report to the newspaper. And when it was snowed or rained, he wanted it inside his little spring door so it stayed dry. And, you know, I, I used to think, well, why would I remember that? Because he was somebody I knew that the paper had to be delivered right, had to be delivered at the right time. Because he would report, he would report me. He would let me know, you know, that, that, I wasn't doing my job right. And so he was holding me accountable, you know, at a 10, 11, 12 year old age. He didn't care how old I was. You had a job to do. And he, this is the way he expected you to do it. And so 
I guess I learned that customers set expectations and it's your job if you want to keep that relationship to, to follow them and to learn to be accommodating. Um, you know, years later on that paper out, and, and uh, I think I mentioned it in the book, when I was uh, 13 years old, I stopped doing paper rocks. I was uh, into sports, football, basketball, baseball, wrestling, boxing, you name it. And by the time I was 13, 14, it was just too much. And I couldn't do the paper. Route. My mom and my parents were actually helping me do the paper a lot. But um, five years later, between 13 and 18, I was driving by his house in my, in my uh, car, my 69 Chevelle Malibu, and uh, had the windows down because the air conditioner didn't work. And I'm, I drive by and Mr. Thurston yells at me, hey, paper boy. And I looked at it, I go, hey, Mr. Thurston. He said, hey, pull over. So I, I pull over and he walks up to the curb and he says, um, so you're the sports kid, huh? And he's got the paper in his hand. He's hitting his hand with it. He goes, you're the sports kid, huh? You're the, you're the kid in the paper. I said, I don't know. I guess so, sir. And he says, but your parents proud, huh? And I go, I don't know. I hope so. And he says, uh, so are your neighbors. And I go, oh. I, I thought, thanks, Mr. Thurston. I, I drove home and say, mom, dad, you know, good Mr. Thurston to go, that old mean guy. I said, yeah. I go, he remembered me. Five years later, he saw me in the paper. And he but said something about it. You but know. he probably taught you some of the best lessons that you learned that you don't even get in uh, grad school. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you work with an entrepreneur named uh, Paul uh, Hirschman. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Correct. And one of the early outpatient clinic entrepreneurs. What did you learn from him and about the industry that interested you and about how to scale a business? And you need to give just a little bit of background on who this gentleman is. Okay. Paul, Paul Hirschman uh, was a uh, drug rep for, uh, he used to sell birth control for Johnson & Johnson before he saw uh, an opportunity working in uh, the, the space with the uh, some OB-GYNs, okay, um, obstetrics, gynecology doctors. And he saw an opportunity to move procedures out of the hospital to an outpatient setting. And that's why he used, he, actually, he uses the word all the time, early disruptors, right? And uh, I was like, that's so cool. And I read about it all the time, what disruptors are. And that is, he was changing the flow of patients going to the hospital to have procedures and redirecting them to an outpatient setting. And at the time, you know, back in the late eighties and early nineties, when, when we did this, it was, it was, um, it was scary. The doctors were going to take a risk of doing procedures in an outpatient setting versus a hospital. Now I say scary, but this is, a, this is a calculated scary because the doctor's always in control, but, um, we were doing procedures that were typically, uh, a, like I'll just call it a cold knife cone. Okay. That's what, that was the old term for a uh, conization where they took a, a chunk of the lady's cervix and uh, for uh, the diagnosis would be dysplasia. And they would, they would take a chunk of the cervix in a hospital. You'd have to be at the hospital an hour, two hours early. Then they, they would, you'd be waiting for the doctor. The doctor has to be there an hour early also. Then they would usually do an anesthesia and then you'd have the procedure, which took 10 to 15 minutes. And then the, you'd have to wait in the hospital till you recovered, till you woke up from your anesthesia. Doctor has to wait to leave the hospital until you're awake. He can't leave the hospital because he's got medical staff bylaws that say that that's a, the, the protocol and procedure. So this doctor has just spent 
three to four hours in a procedure that he can do in an outpatient setting in 15 minutes and roll in there 15 minutes before and leave 15 minutes after it. Okay. So things like that, that um, being at the forefront of that was really cool. And Paul saw more than just that. He saw dermatology with YAG laser taking off tattoos. He saw all kinds of things that you can move from not only the outpatient setting, now you could do them in, in an office setting as well. So Paul was, uh, again, visionary and creative. And when he says scale, he wanted to, if you can do it in, in Dallas, where the home office was, he wanted to take it nationwide. And so he wanted to make sure everything was duplicatable and was where we had to be, I'll say, continue to be creative. He wanted it to be a system, a process that we could be teachable and scalable. Um. I thought this was interesting reading your book, uh, and everybody needs this. A tactic you took to turn around the hospital you were working at was getting referrals, and everybody kind of lives off of referrals. How do you get people to trust you that you don't even know to give you referrals? Because that happens in, when you're in a startup. You, know, you need to get people to trust you enough to not just give you their business or that you've met them and they know people that they could refer you to. What do you say to somebody? What information do you provide? How do you follow up? Give us the, give us the methodology for doing this in a successful way. Wow. Well, I hope I hope the people that are listening and we get to hear this in the future take this as a notes. Um, you know, one of the best uh, strategies or the techniques, whatever you want to call it, was when you go to a customer. Uh, or, you know, in my business was, was in whatever, uh, the hospital world, where I would go to a physician that is used to sending his patients to, you know, one particular hospital. Or you have a customer that does business with a, a competitor, right? So the idea is you don't go and ask them to stop doing business with the other person in cold turkey. You don't ask for a full switch. You don't ask for the referral to stop eating at their favorite restaurant, right? You don't ask them to stop going to the dry cleaner they've been going at for 20 years, who they probably have a relationship with, right? So what you do is you ask them for a try. Give me, give me one opportunity. You know, you don't have to bring it every week. Just give it to me next week. Let me just show you what we can do. Let me let you see if there's a difference. Let you see if I if we don't deliver on the things that I say we're gonna do. And I think that's what happened. I think I went to, uh, I don't remember at, you know, with Microsolutions, I remember going to Lincoln Property and Trammell Crow. One of the hardest things to overcome was someone who would say, listen, we already have you know, two or three vendors that do all this. Um, you'll have to wait till our next um, you know, proposal uh, cycle. I'm like, well, when's that? It was six months. I go, oh, wow, wait six months and have an opportunity to compete for price? I said, no, we don't do that. We... And that's the other thing. We don't 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 put yourself in the same boat as everybody else. Don't don't compete on price. You know, compete on on what you believe is the benefit to the customer. You know, you are and let them know you're you're trying to help them. You're trying to be on their side. Um, and when you say the trust, that comes from day one. You know, or we, when I tell people I come in and talk to them for five minutes, I look at my clock, my watch in five minutes. I say, I appreciate your time. I need to get out of here. Because I said I'd be here out of here in five minutes. Do what you say you're going to do. Build that integrity right away, you know. And best guess what? They'll tell you. Obviously, in the first five minutes, no, it's okay. I got a couple more minutes. Keep going. Now you know they're they're interested, right? Now you know you've already established some trust. You've already built a little bit of a bond. 
Well, they want to hear more. They like what you're saying. They, there's already a trust. There's already some relationship, you know, mutual. And, you know, I've read, and I'm sure most of your, your followers have read too, that people, what is it? What is it uh, out of a hundred people, 20 will automatically not like you. 20 will automatically like you. The other, it's the other 60 we're trying to figure out, right? So, and we don't even know why people like us. A lot of people don't like us by association. I mean, I fortunately, I've heard more, and my, my kids have grown up there and say, Dad, everybody thinks they know you. Dad, they see you. You look like someone they know. Well, it's not that. It's because when people watch you and listen to you, and if, if you're a kind person, if you're trying to, you know, like you say, emulate, um, do unto others as you want them to do to you, People will look at you and they'll say, you know, hey, you know that Mark Kramer guy? He reminds me of this guy. He reminds me of that. Because why? They're trying to find other similarities between you and other people they like. But if they don't like you, they don't don't go, you know, I don't like that Mark Kramer. You know, here's why I don't like him. They don't say that. They just don't know why they don't like you. But when they like you, they remember that you look like or act like somebody else. There's something when people say, you know, Mark, did anybody tell you you have a twin? They automatically like you. So, and you don't say, no, oh, I don't know anybody. I don't, I don't have any twins. I would never know anybody in Philadelphia. No, no, you don't say that. You always, always follow up with, oh, really? What do they do? Where'd you meet them? Oh, yeah. How'd you meet? Them? Oh, yeah. Cool. You know, so you immediately follow with that, right? If someone thinks they know you. So, when, when the referral process was, I always just asked for the opportunity. I said, I came here just to ask for one. I'm not asking you to change your business, I'm not asking you to stop doing business with the other people. Just give us a try. And that's how it worked. And when when I rolled into uh, my hospital, and I think I, I told the story, when I rolled into the hospital in Louisiana, coming from big Dallas to little town in Louisiana, and the two previous doctors that were the medical directors had resigned, quit working at the hospital to go work at a new hospital across town. And I rolled in and they said, oh, they, you know, this, I just recruited from a group out of uh, Harrisburg, right? Medical Alliance, you know, which is now Select. Um, the Ortensios, um, Mr. Ortensio, and, and uh, I, I called him and I said, hey, did the two doctors quit? I mean, my first day on the job, nine people resigned. And I was sitting there going, well, I'm like a COO and nine people <laughs> resigned. That's not a good start, right? And they said, oh, well, the two doctors already quit. They said all the patients, all 17 are going to be discharged in the next 10 days. And I was like, what? So I called Philadelphia or Harrisburg and I said, hey, What's going on? What happened? And they said, oh, they quit 90 days ago. We've just been stalling them until we could get you and another doctor on board. And I'm like, what? So next morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, this uh, about five foot six um, uh, doctor with a lab coat down past his knees, walking down the hall, and he says, he's an Indian uh, gentleman. He says, you must be Mark. And I said, <laughs> hey, he goes, I am Dr. Vesduva Dulipala. I am the new medical director. And I was like, I couldn't couldn't quite understand the accent because I'm, you know, still 30 years old, young guy, hadn't been exposed to that many different accents all over the place. And he says, it's all going to be okay. You and I will fix it. And I was like, that guy today is still there 25 years later. He's still the medical director of that same hospital. And we went from 17 patients out of 49 beds, all being discharged in 10 days. 30 days later, we had 41 out of 49 bodies, you know, in the hospital and stayed that way 80% occupied for the next two years. And I tell people, we didn't do anything special other than he did what he said he was going to do. He took good care of people. And we built a team of people that would do what we asked him to do. Just do your job. Be part of the team. 
there's an example in the book about being a perfectionist. And my own experience is that perfectionists take a very long time and miss the opportunity or just never move forward. Steve Jobs was one of the few perfectionists when it came to product design, but by and large, most aren't. What has been your experience and what do you think about that statement about you know, perfectionist, because I think you write in the book that you really can't be a perfectionist and succeed as an entrepreneur because you got to get moving. Wow. So not to burst any bubbles, but uh, some of my best employees um, and some of my, some of the best people that I know are perfectionists. They, they just keep redoing things. They keep redoing things. And I think the, the, the example you were getting to was too, is paralysis by analysis. Yeah. Right? And that's what a perfectionist does. They will continue to just redo and redo and redo to the point where, you know, they don't put it out. You know, they don't, they're afraid to even show what they've done, you know, and that's, that's, again, that's, that's the paralysis, but some of those are the best people to have on your team uh, as a COO, as, you know, product development, as somebody, some of your best task oriented people are the ones that are the perfectionists, you know, the, when they say something uh, and they stand behind it, you know, they're not just throwing out an idea. Um, they make sure they back it up. And so I like perfectionists. I do see that a perfectionist would have a hard time running a company that in a fast paced world in a, in a, in a changing, uh, involving place, Steve jobs. Yeah. Come on. I mean, he's still just a brilliant mind. His mind was just going, he's like, he's already got 10 projects. That's the thing. He's just got to keep putting them out one at a time, make sure, but he had people like Steve Waz that was with him that, that made it happen. He was the perfectionist who was a really smart guy who could make it happen. Oh, yeah. Without Steve Wozniak, you'd never heard of Steve Jobs. Correct. Um, one of the questions from the audience is, what is the story of his daughter and Mark Cuban in Shark Tank? Oh, my daughter? Yeah. My daughter, my daughter hasn't been in Shark Tank, but uh, my my uh, daughter Zoe was the one at the uh, Mavs Gala and w was... Uh, we talked to Mr. Cuban about when we worked at MicroSolutions. My youngest daughter, uh, Sophie, we watched Shark Tank, and she is the one who can watch things. And she always says, Dad, why do I always like the things Mr. Cuban likes? And I go, because you think like him. And uh, she's not always, a bad way to think, right? Yeah, she says, Dad, I, I don't like to talk like Mr. Wonderful with the numbers. She goes, but you, you know all the numbers. You know what he's saying. She goes, but I can tell you what ideas and what products that you should invest in. And I said, okay, Sophie, that's all I need. But there you go. Uh, every, you know, I have I have an older daughter that's a licensed marriage family therapist. She's a perfectionist, okay? But she does counseling for an hour at a time with families, you know, and does a really good job at it. Um, my, my other daughter, uh, Zoe, and then Tanner, they're, they're more like that. You know, we're more creative. Let's go make it happen kind of people. Sophie is still the youngest and she's figuring it out. And then of course, Abby. She's my, she's my, my uh, she's my special girl. So in your book, you were, uh, one of, uh, one of your employees said one of your best qualities as a leader is letting someone make decisions without you looking over their shoulder. Uh, this is a two-way street. How did you get employees to trust you that they'd be willing to make decisions without asking your approval? And how did you develop the trust to let them do it when many leaders feel everything has to be run by them? And is there also a dollar number or risk scenario where you say the leader has to make the final call? 
Wow. The, that question's relative to obviously your business. Um, the dollar amount is going to be based on you know, what type of uh, business you're in, what type of volume and dollars you're talking about. Is your product, you know, a, a car that's 30 grand or 50 grand? And what's their level of responsibility or accountability? Um, the, I guess the the two way street is probably the the best best way to answer that is it, it's two way. You you got to feel comfortable that you you got to delegate eventually. If you want to grow, you're going to have to delegate, and to delegate means you're going to have to give people responsibility to make decisions. And as a good manager, though, you need to um, live with those decisions. Don't come behind them and say. I didn't agree with that and correct them in front of people. No, you pull them aside and say, okay, you made the decision. Now we're going to have to figure out how to change it. But you know what? Let's go ahead and change it and, and give everybody a reason why we changed it if it didn't work, right? And I'm the first to admit too, hey, you, you've got to be big enough to own something that, uh, a decision that didn't work. You've got to be able to, like you say, pivot, come back and, and say, hey, we tried it this way. It didn't work. We're going to try it this way. And but, but people had to trust you because they're afraid they'll get their heads lopped off. You know, they could have been in other organizations where they tried something and they lost their job or they lost their standing or whatever. How do you make sure people can trust you that they know they won't get their heads lopped off if they make a mistake? Yeah, I think that goes back to two way. You got to have mutual respect. I think that uh, I was very, very fortunate that the People around me, I had people with me in my company for 20 years, 18, 16, 14. Uh, that took time. You know, people, uh, they learned that I wasn't, a, like you say, a, a hothead. I didn't fire people on the spot. That, that was not my MO. And as a successful leader, I think that um, you, you don't want that reputation anyway. You know, you, you want people to know that you are going to make mistakes because we all make mistakes. And, and you're not going to lose your job on the first go around. That's... Here, here's a question from the audience for you. Are, are you open to other speaking arrangements where we can reach out for more information on this? I, I can, if it's okay with you, I'd love to send your sure. email address to them. Or if there's an email that you want to go out, you could send it to me and we can make sure we make that connection. Would that be good, Mark? You bet. That's fine. Love to. All right, great. And so there are many stories throughout the book about the ability to be resilient, which is an entrepreneur is the most important word in your life. Some people panic when things go wrong and can't get up. They're so humiliated that they just uh, don't want anyone to see them because they're so embarrassed. Can resilience be taught? And what, what's your process for overcoming failure? Wow. Oh, I, again, this is a personal that, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you, that, that's just part of your, your DNA. You are definitely a resilient person because we we know that we don't always everything doesn't always work. So you know, getting up and restarting is just part of my day, my life. You know, uh, even today, uh, sometimes you know when when I, I I talk to my kids and and we're I'm trying to help them but not give them the answers. Um, I want them to pick the wrong answer. Some I don't want them to pick the wrong answer, but sometimes they pick the wrong answer and I know it's not going to work. But I watch them go down that that path. And uh, the term is critical pathways. When people, you know, they have to learn that when you go this way and that doesn't work, you go this way, you go this way. You know, you're following the critical pathways. You know, in, in the healthcare world, you, you know, you're presented at a hospital. Um, you, you roll into the hospital and you have a cardiac arrest. Well, that's critical pathways. Boom, we, got, we have a cardiac arrest. Let's, 
get the heart working. But then they they also have other comorbidities. We all learned about those from uh, the uh, pandemic, right? Uh, COVID was a, originally a, a, a comorbidity and not really a major, the major diagnosis. It was, um, anyway. So we, we have to learn to be critical thinkers. We have to be able to accept resilience as, as part of what we're going to do in life. That is building character. You know, character is just like in sports. Man, we don't, we have to learn that we don't always win, right? And, and just because you walk the last batter doesn't mean you're going to walk the next guy, right? In baseball. Um, and when, when you get beat on a pass pattern near a D back, I was a D back, man, if the guy beat you one time, you can't think he's going to beat you every time. You know, that's just, that's resilience. You got to know you're going to come back and they're not, you're not going to lose every time. Here's the last question for you. And by the way, you're, you're probably a Dallas Cowboys fan, aren't you? Season ticket holder. What's that? I'm a season ticket holder and I've been a fan since I was seven. See, I, I almost thought of not having you on the show because I realized being a Philadelphia guy and an Eagles fan <laughs> that I had to really think, did I like this guy well enough in this book well enough to bring you on this show? So my final question to you is today's 30-something strives for work-life balance, it's, especially those of us um, who are entrepreneurs and our kids are following us and they're looking at us and like, my God, that's insane how many hours you work. I don't want that. What's your advice in this area for people who are hoping for that work-life balance? Well, the uh, that's the dream, right? We want to be able to uh, have our have our have our work and do something we like doing, and then still be able to be the the best parent we can be, or spouse. You know, if you don't have kids, you still want to have a, a quality of life both ways. Um, I think people are the pandemic brought people home. I think people started to wake up a little bit that. You know, we don't have to run to the office for 16 hours a day. We can, we have more people now at home than we ever did. Um, doesn't work great for some of us entrepreneurs that want other minds around us. You know, we want, we want that. But now we're learning to do exactly what we're doing right here today. You know, we're doing Zoom. You know, we're with a group of people sharing ideas and talking. And I, I think that the 30 something has a way better start than us older people did because we always were used to face to face. And I think the 30-something today is, is more technology-driven. They can have Zoom calls. They, they get the opportunity to be in their house, to be with their family, and be able to do work. So I think they have a 30-something that a, has a new perspective and probably a better perspective than we did. Well, Mark, in spite of you being a Dallas Cowboys fan, uh, it was a pleasure having you today. Uh, I like, because everything you wrote in that book was very practical. And it's relatable because you're not talking about building the next Tesla. You're talking about things that everyday entrepreneurs are dealing with. And that's what made this book really a, a wonderful read. So we wish you the best of luck with this book. And when you come to Philadelphia, uh, naturally, I'd love to um, host you for a meal here. Yeah, well, when you want to come to a Cowboy game with the Eagles in town, just call me. <laughs> I, will, a, I will. I will call a, you and I will. I'm happy to sit with you at a game, Mark. All right. All right. Everybody have a great weekend and look forward to seeing you all next week. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.